Welcome to Documental, Mapping the American States of Mind. I'm your host and producer, Whitney Fishburne in Washington, and my guests this time around are David Geyer, Artistic Director of the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra and also of the Lakota Music Project. We'll also speak with Emmanuel Bull Black Bear, a member of the Ogallala Sioux Nation and the leader of the Creekside Singers on the Rosebud Reservation. He's also a member of the Lakota Music Project. So what I'm interested in having the two of you on the show, on Documental, is because I would like to ask you how through music you're demonstrating the differences in spatial relationships to people, to the earth, and then of course to our spirit because music surpasses language. It's really the way that we communicate with what's greater than ourselves, but within ourselves too. And so ultimately what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna tie this back to our indigenous, both Western and indigenous to this continent approaches to healing and to, and to wellness. Um, you know, the Western approach is uh, much more logical, measurable, replicable, you could say linear, and the Dakota-Lakota approach is much more um, suddenly inspired, kind of in touch with the elements, and um, I would think of it as more holistic, kind of like the medicine wheel, it's circular, whereas our Western way is more driven, but I see this as two sides of, of a necessary, you know, yin and yang kind of equation. So the best thing to do would be to start with how this project came together and what it actually is for. And I guess I'm going to start with um, Maestro Geyer for that because you were really the originator of the, of the project, uh, of the idea, and then you took it to the nation and then they helped you to put it together. When I first came as music director at the South Dakota Symphony, it was after 20 years of living in New York. And one of the biggest surprises I found when I first came was that racial prejudice here was not so much against uh, African Americans, Hispanic, but more towards the Native Americans, towards the Lakota, Dakota, Nakota people that were here. I didn't see it so much right in Sioux Falls where I was working, but the further west you go, it seems the stronger that gets. Keep in mind, this was over 15 years ago. At the end of my first season as music director, we pulled together a luncheon with, uh, with Lakota uh, and Dakota leaders here in Sioux Falls. And I came in with my ideas and I was met with, with total distrust. Um, you know, what's, what's in it for you, who's making money, this kind of thing. And um, it was my first lesson in learning to, uh, to listen, to, uh, to just be quiet and listen to what other people had to say. It was also the beginning of a long process of, uh, of building the Lakota Music Project together with our Lakota partners. And in that time, there were a lot of meetings all across the state with cultural leaders, tribal elders. But, uh, but we had, you know, uh, Bull and I had contact, you know, well, what is it now, Bull? Like 12, 13 years ago, we started, uh, we met each other and uh, started, uh, started having the idea of what this music, putting this together might, might be like. From the beginning of the time that you put this together to now, and, and COVID has changed the, the, um, your ability to go out and actually perform, what has been the, 
the upshot of of the whole project? Has it established relationships you were looking to establish? Has it achieved something beyond what you expected? What, what has actually been the result? Friendship. What do you say, Bull? Yeah, exactly. And not, not just between David and I either, you know, like uh, I'm visiting more with a few of the other musicians to compose some more material. So we're evolving, you know, as time went on. In the beginning, I didn't really understand, you know, how things were going to work and, and different things like that. But uh, I decided to, to give it a try. Mapping and the American at, States at of that mind. time, I'm your host and producer, Whitney Fishburne in Washington. In my and my guests this time around are I David Geyer, artistic was, director of the South Dakota Symphony was, Orchestra born, and also of the Lakota and, uh, Music Project. I started to think, you know, Bull, you know, we Black dealt Bear, with this prejudice, of the this racism, Ogallala Sioux Nation, uh, and the as, leader of the Creekside Singers on the Rosebud uh, Reservation Lakota, in Sioux I guess, Falls. In a way. But um, it, it's not just us, you know, it's, you know, a lot of the other indigenous tribes, too. But we were we, we grew up like that, and we kind of knew where it was. And when we went there, we were we kind of had to prepare ourselves to just in case that we might run into some prejudice or racism stuff. So we grew up like that. So in my mind, when my son was born uh, at the time, uh, my phase was just starting of what can I do to help my son's world when he gets to be my age? And so this uh, Lakota Music Project kind of came along at the right time when I started to see the connection through music because before that, it was just traditional music to me, you know, our own music and uh, what it did for me. And as we started to grow uh, with the, the, the project, I started to see the difference, the way the people looked at us when we got done performing. You know, when, when we got done with the performance, there were people in the audience that were crying, that were emotional because of how they felt seeing the native and the Western music performing together and how we did it. And it wasn't always perfect, but I, I'll tell you, even the times when it wasn't perfect, the people still had that feeling. So no matter how we did, you know, we always tried to shoot to do it the best we could, but that, that, that was quite a, quite an undertaking for, you know, for us and for David also because of the difference in our music. When you say perfect, what do you mean by perfect? Because one of the um, one of the differences now, I, I actually covered and reviewed a concert that you gave in Washington, D.C., I guess a year and a half ago or so now. Um, and I wouldn't say that things in the native tradition are intended to be perfect. They're intended to respond to the spirit. And I don't know, I mean, that, that may sound like a, um, a subtle difference, but I think it's an important one. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, as a critic, if I'm listening to what I typically would review or what, you know, it's generally Western music, I am paying attention to execution, to technicality, but, um, or technical skill and so forth. But I, I really am looking for that spiritual relationship in between the notes and between the, the, the performers and the music itself and the score. Um, but there's still that element of technical precision that in the West, I think we are listening for, we're accustomed to. 
So how did you look for perfection or do you look for perfection when you're, when you're bringing these two worlds together? My, my, my view on perfection for us is for, for me to be able to sing, come in singing on the right beat. <laughs> well, that's pretty much what you want to do as a singer in the Western tradition too. <laughs> well, 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 it's so hard. It's so hard for, for my, like when we sit at a drum, we don't one, two, three, four, and then start singing. We, we can sing, we can hit the drum for an hour before we sing. So there is no timing, there, well, mm -hmm. no starting time. I so see. the perfection that I'm talking about is, you know, how we come in affects the, the orchestra, the symphony and orchestra, because then they have to adjust to how we're singing. Because once you start a song, there, there is no uh, starting over. There is no uh, backing up, like we can't slow down <laughs> our voice. You know, like with a violin or whatever, you can kind of catch up on your notes. What when you're singing, there, there's no stopping. <laughs> I don't know. Is that true, Maestro? <laughs> Once that drum starts going, man, just hang on for your life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We we don't have we don't in our music we can't back up, or we can't slow down. It's just when you say in our music, you're talking about the the Lakota Music Project. Are you talking about no, in, no. In, Lakota. In, in oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So that's the part where we, when we're fusing together, uh, I'm freestyle and they're one, two, three, four. <laughs> so it, it was David's, you know, he cues us in. So if we don't come in right on cue, then they, they have to adjust to what we're doing <laughs> because we can't slow down. We can't start. We're just not meant to do that. You right. know, with our, with our, we're not, we can't, we can't slow down. We might be able to, but we're not used to it. And most most of the people that sing uh, indigenous music, once the song starts, there's there's no slowing down after that, unless you stop the song and start all over. Is that because you're essentially? Is it fair to call that channeling? Are you channeling it, or is it prepared already in your head, and you just this is the way that you perform it once you know it? How, can you give us a little bit more? Um, experiential details like what's it like you can't stop it because what is happening well um it, it's it's like uh i'm trying to think of an analogy of what it is but when i start singing uh i can't start over uh we're, we're taught to just okay whatever happens is gonna happen you you just keep going and that leads back to one of the first questions that you talked about is the healing part and all of that is there's a process to how we do things and it's not measured by by count by on timing or anything like that uh, it's based on our feelings so when we're taught a song it's meant for a specific reason that we we sing that song so whenever we're we're singing that song, like uh, I'm, I'm really trying to listen find to the Documental. Words to, to I'm your host this, and producer Whitney Fishburne, but, uh, and if you'd like to listen to more like podcasts like this one, you can find them on your favorite podcast hour, app or visit WhitneyFishburne.com. That's WhitneyFishburne, no e at the end. So <laughs> singing is like that, or it's like going sixty miles an hour and screeching to ten miles an hour. It's not going to happen, like, and it. You know, we're not taught to do that. Once we hit the highway and the 
speed limit 65 we just go 65. it took a lot of patience to bring things together on both sides of the equation but what might be helpful for uh for your audience whitney is to know that I mean, maybe we have the impression that when we hear a Lakota singer that they're improvising and they're not. Like it's a very specific mm. form and verses and songs and rhythm and so on. And it's that's when he says you can't stop the train. It's once they start, that song goes till it ends. And everybody who's sitting around the drum knows that song. And hmm. that's the way that song goes, and we don't we don't deviate at all. So that's what he's talking about. So when you have as the as the conductor of these two disparate ways of riding the rails, how do you bring these two trains together and get them moving on the same track, um, Maestro? How, how does that work, and what does that require of your musicians that you're that you know that you are accustomed to working with the Western trained ones? Well, so I, I think Bull is right. Bull, you're referring mostly to Black Hills of Lowan. Right, right. It's kind of our signature piece. And it was composed by Brent Michael Davids, who's a Mohican composer. And he took a traditional Lakota song and created an orchestral tapestry surrounding it. So it's about a 15 minute long piece. And throughout the the piece, you get snippets of this traditional Lakota song, and it ends with a full on rendition. And that's when the drum starts and we can't stop and it's like crazy. But all of the entrances that the singers have are without the drum, up to that last one, all of them are without the drum. And so we had to overcome several obstacles. Um, one is pitch reference. Because right, well, we usually the the keeper of the drum, the lead singer, will basically, you know, throw his voice up there, and everybody else follows, and it's not necessarily the same pitch each time, right? Right. So we had to. So what Brent did, interestingly, was he actually wrote little bits of the tune prior to each entrance. But even trying to hear that within an orchestral texture was something totally different for these guys. So I'm, I'm presenting it sort of one-sided here because they had to have a lot of patience with us as well. You know, we had because you know we had to figure out how to negotiate all of these different entrances for this piece. And this is the this is the very first piece that we commissioned. You know, it was, it's really hard, <laughs> so, um, you know, it was just right out of the, right out of the gate. And uh, it was, so it's a wonderful piece. It really works very well, but, uh, but we had to, I don't know, those first couple of rehearsals were just like every entrance, like over and over and over again and finding the pitch and, you know, sometimes just isolating that oboe and like, okay, like, you know, let's match this pitch and then bring it back in to the orchestra and that. But that, of course, that doesn't mean it's going to work right the next time we do it. So, like, you know, we just we, we had to um, to figure out. And then my cueing of, of these guys was another thing. Right, Bo? Like I would you, you guys aren't used to being cued at with with non-musical gestures. You know, it's like, what's he doing? He's lunging at us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. 
So when you so this really is about relationships then too because this is going to inform the way that you work together. It's you know your your new um, collaborators have to understand that you're not lunging at them. In fact, <laughs> you're you're actually giving them the permission that they need in order to do their part and, and join in. So you know you haven't really it, the you haven't been able to do much in the last year because of COVID, but. I'm imagining that having worked together as long as you have um, the project started performing when in 2014? Is that what you said? 2009. 2009. Oh, OK. So about 14-ish years. Um, you have a sense. You've, you've been recalibrated, I imagine, to, to, to the kinds of stimulus stim, stimuli that normally you would that would cause you to think about music or cause you to think about performing. And I'm wondering how this melding of these two types of um, responses to the spirit, because I, again, I restate this, that music is a way that we are communing with that which is beyond language, but is essential. We look for ways to use music to, to inspire us and to connect us. How has being um, a part of this project changed the way you look at how you can integrate disparate things? And I guess um, I, I'd like to go back to you um, Maestro, and start there because um, it was your project and you were looking to do that already. I, I had no preconceptions about what this would sound like when we started. Um, and I think I was looking for the extra musical solution. Um, I was looking for the, the way to create friendship. And it began with trust. Trust was, you know, we, we both came, the, the Creekside singers and the, and the players of our orchestra came together with open, open minds, open hearts into this. Um, so I think, I think we didn't think too hard about it, you know, right? We just plunged into it and started making music together. I'm gonna to hand it over to you, Bull, because you can probably you know, tackle that question even better than I can. Yeah, and just to talk about our spirits with the music, and um, I think uh, David and I, we became really good friends without having to talk to each other through music, through the gestures, you know, like when you talked about are you yeah. saying you get tired of hearing me talk? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Come on. We well, well, that the thing is, um, like with the with singing, you know, we we well, of course, with the symphony, like where I'm from, we hardly come across symphony music, and so, and then on the other side with Dave, they hardly come across native music, you know. And, and then being in New York and all of these other things. So um, we became good friends through music while we're performing. Uh, in my life, I'm the, I'm the drum keeper, I'm the lead singer, I'm the manager, I'm the, you know, I'm the bus driver, I'm, I'm all of that. And I'm the one that gives directions. Yeah, I'm the one that points my finger at what we're gonna do. And so when we had started this project, you know, I had to be able to put that ego away and say, 
you know, I'm working with somebody and, and I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm going to rely on that. And I'm not going to say, well, you need to do it my way. This is how I do things. And this is how, you know, I couldn't say that because like I said at the time, trying to figure out how I'm going to make my son's world better is through music and continue so with the South Dakota Symphony and, and the other projects that I work on is to, like right now, if you were to look up statistics on Native Americans, they're not good. And so when we do our music, when we do our dancing and, and all of this kind of stuff, uh, people see us in a different light. We're not those, stati those statistics that are out there about Native Americans. And so when people look at us and they see us doing those things, it might change their mind about their perception of all Indians. And through music and through our friendship, you know, this, this project has really, you know, grown. And it, it, it does mean a lot. You know, we just don't see each other when we perform. You know, Dave and I, we've been texting back and forth throughout this past couple of months, you know, and some of the players too, some of the other musicians from the symphony, I have contact with them too. And same way, you know, we, we got to know each other through music and, and we, we were able to, uh, at least on my part, I was able to, um, uh, expand my horizons through a different form of music and so my youngest son uh, we were at dave's house uh, this is a little short story we were at dave's house and he's never been around a piano and he sat down at the piano and he started playing he didn't just start throwing his hands he started pushing one at a time so we you know we're thinking maybe he does have a, a music in him that way so it, it changed his perception of music also. It's not just dad's way. You know, well, you're, you're getting at what, I mean, it might seem like I'm kind of trying to smash two worlds that make no sense together, but I really think that there is this connection here. When, when I look at medicine, when I look at healing, I think of it in, a, in an integrated way. And, um, you know, what I'm exploring this year is something called slow medicine, where we're talking about you know, um, Western technology, not medicine, but Western medical technology is extremely miraculous when it comes to um, acute situations. If you get into a car wreck, you want Western technology. You want it fast and you want it to work and it does. So we're incredible in that way. But I'm wondering if we would do better to look backward when it comes to treating things that are more gentle in their nature and chronic in their nature. And I am looking to the, the project as a sort of model for using that straight ahead, um, shiny ability to be replicated and to get things done and to move you quickly and maybe, you know, um, achieve, achieve things that are beyond the understanding of the language, but also um, marrying that with what is more um, organic to the moment, organic to the, um, the entire environment and to treat somebody with medicine that is more like, hmm, stepping back and looking at the person as one of my guests earlier this year, Dr. Victoria Sweet said, she said, the way she practices medicine now is how is this person thriving or not? Do they have enough water? Do they have too much water? Or, you know, is it too wet? 
not wet enough? Is it too dry in their environment? And then their, their temperament. And that is very much how the native um, perspective on life is, is how do we bring things into balance? Now, I'm not saying that the West, you know, European Western traditions don't have an idea of balance, but, but we don't emphasize that as much. Perhaps things are changing. So I look at this project and I think you really are trying to achieve a workable, moving way of communicating and building relationship that is bringing together two perspectives on the world that don't necessarily get brought together often. And it seems to be working. You've created relationships between the two communities. You have been able to leave the um, you know, leave the state and go travel elsewhere and perform to great acclaim. And you know, people are looking to what you're doing as sort of a model for these kinds of truly meaningful integrated projects. This is a very long way of asking: Is there something you can apply? Are you seeing that this could be applied in ways that heal as well as um, develop stronger bonds. Music is healing. It, uh, no matter what what race you are, what people you come from, music is healing. And, and through, um, through what we're doing, fusing these two musics together, there's a special connection there of, uh, of your spirit. And to me, and how I've learned through music is we all have a spirit of our own. We all have a medicine of our own. And we have to nurture that spirit and that medicine and use it for ourselves and our family. And for we're given gifts, we have the, the gift of music, being able to share that, not only with our native, but our non-native. And same way, vice versa. We all have that gift of music and that's going to help our spirit to open our minds. And through that, we don't look at each other from the color of our skin. We don't look at each other on our political views or whatever. And we can go into a lot of political views, but uh, we, we don't look at each other like that through music. And when I talk about our David and I's relationship, through music, that's what made us have a strong relationship is through the music. And we were able to, to take our own aura and, and uh, come up with this, you know, be able to do this. And even though, you know, the stuff that David says and how, how hard it was to bring that together, we fought with ourselves to do it and something beautiful came out of it. So through the healing part of music, you know, it's not just the natives and the non, uh, and uh, it's the non-natives too. So even though our music alone that we, we believe in is spiritual, we have a song from when the sun comes up till the sun goes down. We have songs throughout that day for every occasion in our life. And those are taught to us since the beginning of time and we still carry it through today. So some of the songs that we sing come from six, 800 years ago, a thousand years ago. And we, we do our old music with uh, the symphony and they also have that music dating back to those times too. So it's through history 
that our spirits are able to come together and create that uh, uh, those feelings that people get from it. So we're we're not seeking to achieve stuff. It's it's just being achieved because we believe in this project. I think it's um, I think what's really powerful for people experiencing it is is the the demonstration of the friendship through the music. Like right. people can see what's possible uh, through through the music. Um, you touched on something else, Bull. Is that that's in this project? The music that we're sharing is the traditional music from each of our cultures. Right. There was a, a pivotal moment on in Pine Ridge. Um, Got to be twelve, thirteen years ago now. Uh, where we had our, our principal string quartet, woodwind quintet, and the drumming group in a room together for about four hours. And we were just playing music back and forth for each other. And um, during that time, it, it came out that, that the, what the drumming group was playing was traditional music. You know, then that their hope was to pass this music on to the next generation. And I said, bingo, that's exactly what we do. We have hundreds of years worth of music that has been deemed the, the, the music that is most worthy to be carried on generation after generation. And, you know, we as symphony orchestra musicians, we're simply stewards of that. Of, of this music. Um, we're here for a moment to, uh, to, to perform this music, obviously, but also to educate, to share this um, generationally, and hopefully to add to it, you know, by commissioning new works and the sort of things so that we have something to, uh, to, to pass on. But this was the point, the point of connection that we found to begin with. I'm wondering if the uh, the paradigm of listening that you're both talking about has been something that you can turn to and say, we can now apply that in other ways and see the fruits of the work that you've laid down since 2009. It's kind of a mantra that I've been going to since the beginning of COVID, um, particularly with all the politics around it, uh, was that we as musicians are professional listeners. That's what we do. Every rehearsal, every performance. That's we so beautiful. Very carefully to each other. We cannot make music well unless we listen very carefully. So we have something to teach everybody this way. And if we can teach them to listen to music more carefully, then perhaps we can listen to each other more carefully as well when we're talking. Now, having said that, you know, whenever you get something successful like this, there are all kinds of entities and people who would like to to take credit for it or to, to like, so politicians like what we do. <laughs> I can't say to answer your question more directly, Whitney, that it's influenced policy yet. Um, the, the, there are people who like to talk about Lakota Music Project and and the things that it's done. But um, I, I don't know, it's, I, I'm awaiting that day 
I'm hoping for that uh, for that time to come. I don't know if your experience on the res has been any different, Paul. I think I think politics is something we're better off staying out of, David. But uh, <laughs> the the influence of music, um, traditionally, non-traditionally, it, it, just like David said, we we talk about listening. We got to learn to listen. If our politicians can remember listening, maybe that'll help them. And hope all we can hope for in our project is that, you know, that point about uh, uh, changing policy. A uh, lot of times music is the first thing that goes out the door when they change in policies. So whether it's, and, and whether it's traditional or, or non-traditional, that's the way it is here on uh, where I'm at too on the reservation. A lot of times our traditional music, even though we're supposed to be living, you know, trying to live that way, being traditional with our music in the school systems, that's one of the first things that goes out the door too, even though it's supposed to be really important to our people. So in, in uh, school, you know, whenever they're cutting funding, music is the first one out the door too. Have and, you ever that, seen when you, I'm sorry to cut in, when you, when you lose the music, do you lose the power to heal? Does some of that power drain away? I, I can't really answer that because I've never lost the music. So I, I don't know how that feels. Um, for my sons, they're singing now and my, especially my teenage son, you know how teenagers go through these grown pains and he sings, he just sings almost every day. That's his healing just by singing. So I don't know how it is to lose the music in your mind. Um, so I can't say as to how much you lose or not, but I can say from watching my son and uh, sometimes they can't talk, you know, the teenagers just won't talk to their parents sometimes about certain things, but I can tell when he's uh, feeling somehow by the songs he's singing, you know, he must be feeling this way now he's singing that song, you know, and, and so singing is healing. Music is healing, you know, especially to our teenagers. They're the ones that need it the most at that time. So if they're being taught and they're using that, they're, it's helpful. I can see that through my son. So the, um, you're right. We, we individually, we don't lose the music. Um, people will, will find, find the music. Um, not to get too political, Bull, but uh, <laughs> um, I think the distinction, though, is that when we devalue music as a culture, devalue art as a culture, commodify it, and make it only, only about what sells and so on and so forth, then I think it cheapens the music and, and it also restricts the access to music, particularly particularly traditional musics, mu musics that tend to tend to really take us to the places that Whitney you're talking about, beyond ourselves, uh, that that, uh, that cause us to contemplate things that are higher, things that are better. This has been really exactly what I was looking for. It's a wonderful conversation. I think you both brought out to the fore what I'm talking about, which is, is that um, 
when we're conscious of our place in the bigger picture and we can hear how we sound in the bigger picture, then it's easier to facilitate relationships and appreciation for what's around us. And I imagine, um, you know, and I'm, I'm not, I'm just, I'm not discounting Western European music at all. That's my tradition and I love it. I'm just excited to think that we have now this, this model for bringing together two disparate ways of, of hearing our souls talk to us and then teaching one another so that we understand that there's not one way to hear the soul. And what that has to do with medicine, I think really is, it's not some kind of crazy non-tangential relationship, but that everything is elemental, even when we, when we think of it in just um, reductionist ways or, you know, if then, you know, like if I do this, then I'll get this reward. If I do this, I'll sell this ticket. Instead of if I do this, I'll be connected to my day and to my ancestors from 800 years ago. So um, thank you. I, if you wanted to say any other, you know, closing thoughts, but but you guys have, have really um, made my heart sing. This has been really, really lovely. Yeah, thank you for having us. Being able to talk about what we do, it, it, it's uh, it's kind of like a reward in itself. You know, like I wake up when, when we go to our performance, uh, that's really uplifting to me. And whether there's 10 people there or a thousand people there, uh, I'm uplifted. But to see a response, you know, and how they've been responding is also like a validation of what we're doing is true. You've been listening to Documental. I'm your host and producer, Whitney Fishburne. And if you'd like to listen to more podcasts like this one, you can find them on your favorite podcast app or visit WhitneyFishburne.com. That's Whitney Fishburne, no E at the end, dot com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>